Friday, everyone. Welcome to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Barad. I'm your host, Michelle Barad, founder and CEO of Urban Book Editor and Michelle Barad LLC. And I am very happy to share this hour with you where we examine all those places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. Now, you guys know I like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows that explore life, spirit, business, and culture, including The Woman at the Well, hosted by Ms. Beverly Black herself. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel, and though we've grown onto our own platform, we are ever grateful and loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are only here because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. I want to say thank you to my guests on the January 10th show, Christian coach and inspirational speaker, Dr. Kendra Davis-Burke. You can connect with Dr. Kendra on social media, and you can find her books on Amazon. If you missed that show, make sure you listen to the replay. You can find our complete show archives, including the January 10th show, at thesomewhereinthemiddlepodcast.com. I also want to shout out Bruce George of the Geniuses Common Movement, which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. This is a really important message, especially important for the youth. But we adults also need to be reminded sometimes that the world needs our genius. Learn more about the Genius is Common movement at www.geniusiscommon.com. Now, I'm really pleased to be back from the holidays, and I hope you guys had a great time with friends and family. I still can't believe it's 2020. Time sure does pass quickly. But now that we're back from vacation, we have a new interview with an amazing woman and social justice advocate. Reverend Yvette Blair Lavallee was seven years old, sitting in a pew at Lee Chapel AME Church in Dallas when she sensed that God was calling her to preach. By the age of 10, she became involved in children's Sunday school and after-school Bible studies. God continued to shape her for ministry as she took on leadership roles within the church and the community throughout her teen and young adult years. Yvette has held pastoral appointments in the United Methodist Church, including serving as the Associate Pastor of Discipleship at the historic St. Luke Community United Methodist Church in Dallas. Her fruitful ministry included cultivating and leading the young adult ministry, women's ministry, Bible study, E2 Elevate Your Experience Wednesday Night Worship, and serving as Director of the Zan Wesley Holmes Jr. Servant Leadership Institute. Yvette was named the 2017 Woman of the Year by iMessenger News, Texas Metro News, for speaking out and giving voice to the numerous clergywomen who have been victims of sexual assault in the church. She is featured in the 2019 documentary, Shatter the Silence, produced by Cheryl Allison and WOW, W-O-W, Films. Yvette speaks to the need for the church to repent and to dismantle the patriarchy that perpetuates violation of women. Yvette has spoken at conferences, including the 2018 Talking About a Revolution Women's Conference, presented by the Mennonite Church USA, and she was invited to present her paper, Where Do We Go From Here? When the Church Disturbs the Status Quo at the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee, as part of their MLK 50 Memphis Teach-In. Yvette wrote and released her first book, Being Ruth, Pressing Through Life's Struggles with Fearless Faith, in the summer of 2017. She weaves this biblical story of the ancient sacred text with real-life practical application of navigating through challenges and getting to the life-giving spaces that God has already created. Yvette is a native of Dallas, Texas, 
holds a BA in journalism from the University of North Texas, and has more than 25 years of experience in media, corporate communications, public relations, and nonprofit, including receiving a congressional appointment to serve as a public relations specialist at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. Yvette is a writing coach and professional editor who has helped more than 20 pastors publish books. So I'd like to welcome Reverend Yvette Blair Lavallee to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Reverend Yvette, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be on and to share with your listeners. Well, you know, well, I've already told you why I'm excited to have you on the show because I think <laughs> what you talk about is really important. Um, but I like to start my interviews with two questions. And I like to start with these two questions because I really believe that they lead into your purpose. And so if you're ready, I'm going to ask my two questions. I'm ready. Awesome. Reverend Yvette Blair Lavallee, who are you and how did you become who you are today? Wow, that's very profound. <laughs> so who am I and how did I become who I am today? I am a food justice activist. I am a writer. I am a preacher. I am an author. I am a person who likes to help other people to amplify their voices. The way I became who I am today, I like to go back, if you will, to when I was still in my mother's womb. My parents decided to name me Yvette because they said the why is not silent. They mm. believed that God would use me to be a prophetic voice to speak up, to speak out about issues, and to stand up against injustices, and to help other people to stand up. And so I feel like the work that I've done as an activist, as a preacher, as a writer, and just as a person in the community speaking out about issues, I feel like that I've been living into that name this entire time. Well, that is definitely a big name to to live into or to grow into right so your parents basically said we are prophesying yes. that she will speak for those who are voiceless or speak for those who cannot speak for themselves yes how did that manifest itself early on in your life so early on in my life i think the way it manifested itself is even when I was in elementary school. I was that kid who always spoke up. I was often labeled as a troublemaker. I was labeled as being sassy or talking back or being out of place. But in my home, the way that I grew up, my parents encouraged me and my siblings to always speak up. Mm -hmm. In fact, my mother was very active as a Black Panther. And really? so, yeah, yeah, she was very active and did a lot of work in the 1960s in terms of helping to integrate restaurants and other spaces. So that's all I knew growing up. I didn't know anything differently. So I, I, I basically like to think I didn't have any other option because <laughs> what I saw being modeled for me is you have a purpose, and if you're able to speak up, speak up not just for yourself, but speak up for other people, and when you see something that's going wrong, then stand up and say something, and so I did, even, even in elementary school, and so from there on through junior high and high school, I just became that person that people would come to anytime there was an issue. They'd be like, oh, well, let's go to YVET. We know that YVET will say something. We know that YVET will raise her hand. We know why Vet is not afraid to say anything, and I wasn't. I was never afraid to say anything. I also knew that it came with consequences, but you know, so what? Mm -hmm. If you if if you don't do things, then you'll be seen as inconsequential. And so I never wanted 
to be seen as inconsequential. I always wanted to be seen as a person who, if there was an issue that was going on, then speak up about. That is so important. It sounds like you came from a legacy of activism. And that's, I mean, that's an important and valuable legacy because I think it's really easy to get complacent, you know, and to not, you know, just like, oh, well, that's just how things are. Right, right. It is. And, and, and a lot of people do sit back and kind of say that's just how things are. And maybe they're not the ones to stand up and say something, but think you know early on like in your gut that you're being called to say something and so I think even when we look throughout history and we see women like Ida B. Wells who stood up even when other people wouldn't when she used the, the power of her pen or the power of the newspaper to speak out about the injustices that were happening so I think in every generation there's always a group of people who will and for the people who won't it just means that we have to represent them and speak up for them well you mentioned that you are a food justice activist, activist. yeah what does that mean exactly so when I say it, what it means is I speak out when I see that there are injustices, when people don't have access to affordable, fresh, healthy food, mm. when they are food insecure, when there are people right within our community who don't have the means or the resources to simply have a decent meal then I'm a person who wants to say something about it, speak to the powers that be, look at what are some ways that we can organize and galvanize in our community to make sure that everybody has access to it. Because it doesn't make sense to me that there would be anybody within our population who doesn't have the basics of fresh, healthy, affordable food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, I think that's really important. One of the things that I notice as I've been in different neighborhoods, I've lived in different cities, and I've even lived in different countries. In the United States, there is such a variation in the quality of food, produce in particular. That's one of my, one of my things is the <laughs> produce quality could drive you to distraction in certain stores. Like, um, and, and the difference even as the demographics change in the neighborhood. So for example, where my house is in Georgia is in the suburb of Atlanta, east of Stone Mountain. And when I first moved into that neighborhood back in about 2006, it literally felt like if we drove in one direction, we were going to white world and we drove in the other direction out of the neighborhood, we we're going to black world. Right. And in black world, the nearest grocery store was, um, actually we did have a grocery or Kroger not far from us, but then the next grocery store after that was probably about 20 minutes away. Wow. wow. And then if you went to white world, you had so much more going on over there. We had the Walmart, we had, you know, if you went up the road another 10 or so minutes, not even 10 minutes, there was a Kroger. Then if you went down the road a different direction, um, there was another Kroger across the highway. And then the difference, just that difference alone in the numbers of grocery stores, and then the quality of the produce and everything in those stores was just amazing to me. Right, right. And then, and we weren't even in what would what people could call a food desert. There are actual areas that could be considered food deserts in Atlanta and other cities. So, what kinds of things do you and well, and you use a specific specific term? Actually, I want to stop for a second. You use a very specific term, and I want you to define it for us. You talk about food apartheid. Can you define right. that term for us? Right. So I do, um, I do prefer to use the term food apartheid instead of food desert. Food apartheid is about a system that's in place that systematically denies access of fresh, affordable, 
and healthy foods to certain populations. The populations that you just described of being in Atlanta and driving one way and you're driving to a white neighborhood and there's access and fresh food and then you're driving to the black neighborhoods and you don't have fresh food, it's because of a system that's in place. Mm -hmm. It's because of somebody somewhere in power has made a decision that says people in a certain demographic, people of a certain population don't deserve or don't have to have the same kinds of fresh, healthy, affordable foods as another demographic does. So I like that term food apartheid over food desert because I think when you hear the term desert, it just naturally sounds like a desert means that something is drying up. And oftentimes we think, oh, if a grocery store is closing in an area or a certain community, it must be because people are leaving the community. It must be because that community is now poverty stricken because so many people are leaving, but that's not true. You find that in a lot of cities, there are middle income people who don't have a grocery store within a three mile radius of their community. Mm -hmm. And if the city leaders are not providing incentives for grocery stores to stay in the area, and they're not providing incentives for new grocery stores to come and locate in that area, but they are doing the same, giving incentives to grocers in predominantly white neighborhoods, then you have to know that that's a system. And so that's why I call it apartheid, because it's, it's political. It's economics. It's beyond just who's going to get to eat. There's somebody who's making that decision. Well, and then I think I have heard, I have read in the past that there's kind of an assumption that, well, black folks don't eat vegetables anyway. <laughs> right, you know, right. all they want to do is eat corn chips and, and drink soda anyway. Right. How do, how do these stereotypes about what we like or what we eat play into this or, or reinforce this concept of a food apartheid system? Definitely language matters. And when the person who is painting a narrative to describe a certain group of people, they will describe that group of people in as negative terms as possible to justify why that group of people doesn't have something. So I was having a conversation just the other day with a person who is from the white community and who said, oh, you know, low income people, they don't have dishware, they don't have pots and pans to be able to prepare vegetables anyway. And so I stood there, yeah, no, seriously, I stood there and I looked at this person and I said, you know, that's an interesting narrative to have. What makes you think that a person doesn't have pots and pans or dishware to be able to cook vegetables? Have you talked to people in these neighborhoods to find out what they have or don't have? I said, because I can tell you that that's not true. They have the means to be able to prepare food. They just need access to the actual food. And so when you have people that are shaping that kind of narrative, that's why it's so important for a different narrative to be introduced. Language matters. That, so she actually said to you, <laughs> people don't have pots and pans? <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, with a straight face. Wow. That's, yeah. all yeah. I can say is that's impressive. That, that is, um, it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's one I hadn't heard before. Um, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I think it's interesting because, and when you and I were talking offline, I mentioned this too, was the quality of the food also vary. Even if you have a grocery store in your area, real what you might call a real grocery store, not just a convenience store in your area, mm -hmm. in certain neighborhoods, the quality of the food varies tremendously. The quality does vary tremendously. So I don't know how often when you're looking at produce and you look at the tag that's on the apple or the peach to see where is that produce coming from. 
a lot of times the grocery stores that are in the black and brown neighborhoods, that produce is not coming from a local farmer. You'd be surprised at how far that fruit is traveling. Sometimes it's not even coming from within that state. Mm -hmm. So if that apple or that pear or peach is on a truck somewhere coming in from another state, and let's say it takes two or three days to make it to where you are, and then you have to go through unpacking it and somebody is sorting it and it just gets bruised, it gets smushed, it looks like it's been on the road, right? Mm -hmm. And then when it reaches the store, that's that's all you have to choose from. And, and it's unfortunate that that happens because you would not see that in the Whole Foods, you would not see that in the Sprouts, you would not see that in a Kroger in a predominantly white neighborhood, but for some reason, there are persons who think it's okay for it to be in black and brown neighborhoods. And that is unacceptable. Um, that, that isn't what we consider food sovereignty, meaning that you have access to specific cultural and dietary foods that you need and foods that are in good condition. So there's no reason that that should be happening. Well, and part of it, I would imagine, is because of the way that our food system works. Uh, food is traveling a good distance, but even in states like Georgia, where they do have farmers that are growing stuff that people could eat, right. um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of, in my opinion, and this is just my observation as a consumer, not as a, a food activist like you, but it, there doesn't seem to be a lot of let's go get some local farmer's food going on at the big grocery stores that are likely to be in some of these neighborhoods, right? So if you have a Walmart, occasionally you'll see a sign that says locally sourced, mm -hmm. but it's pretty rare. Right. So interestingly, one of the things that, that, that I noticed that's changed a lot when I was growing up on the weekends, my mother would go and buy from local farmers. We always went to the farmer's market to get all of our produce. We never got that at the store. Mm. It's not that it wasn't available in the store. It's that my mother wanted to support local farmers. And I'm here in Dallas. I grew up in Dallas. And we have farmers that would come in from East Texas. So maybe they were coming in 30, or 40 miles away and coming into Dallas and bringing the produce with them. This is the way that they would supplement whatever their, you know, nine to five job was. And a lot of people would go out and buy directly from them. I think we moved away from that because it, it seemed as if as society progressed, that we progressed and moved away from supporting local farmers. Mm -hmm. But I would say probably in the last three or four years, there's been this shift we're now it's back to let's support local farmers. The problem is when we were not supporting them, then their livelihood was being lost. They had to start looking for other means to survive. And when they had to start looking for other means to survive, it often meant that they couldn't bring the produce anymore because, you know, obviously when people stopped buying it, then there was no longer the demand for it. But now that things have shifted and people are beginning to say, I want to have locally sourced food, I'm starting to look at restaurants who offer locally sourced food. So now that we're seeing that happening, it also raises the question of how do we then get people interested in farming, particularly in today's culture? And so I think, you know, I think those things are key because unless we do that, then we're going to continue to see some of these systemic problems that we're seeing in the food systems. Well, and the farm to table movement that you're talking about actually is largely an upscale movement where, you know, it's, it's for $14, $20 hamburgers, farm to table type stuff, or, right. um, you know, upscale restaurants typically that we're seeing. And then I would also imagine, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, 
that one of the other challenges is, and this is what I've read about over the years, that we've moved so much away from family farms, mm -hmm. more toward big agriculture, that there actually are very few, relatively speaking, small farms where farmers are bringing their produce to a farmer's market in the city, number one. Right. And then number two, even fewer of those are African-American or other people of color who are actually right. who are farming. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And so I work with some African-American farmers in our neighboring city over in Fort Worth. In Fort Worth, believe it or not, within a 34.5 square mile radius, there are 42 declared food deserts. Wow. 42 in a 34.5 square mile radius. Mm -hmm. And within that area, there's only two grocery stores. So imagine a community that large, that size, there's only two grocery stores and there's no way that those two grocery stores can supply everything that these families will need. So the five African-American farmers, they are grassroots farmers. They are local. They are doing the work. They own their land. They've taken a look and said, what can I do to make a difference to start providing fresh, healthy, accessible produce and not continuing to rely on the city to do something. And so they have come together and actually with the help of the, um, the county, one of our county commissioners in Fort Worth is very instrumental in helping. And um, so these, these five farmers are starting their own local farms. And out of this five, there's one who's a female. And so you've got an African-American female farmer and her goal is to be able to be a source supplier to one of the elementary schools that's right there in the area, as well as some of the other, um, or some of the restaurants in the area. And so if we can multiply that, and just do that across different communities, then we'd be able to make an impact and, and we don't have to look at it as just, you know, the $14 hamburgers because you're absolutely right. I see that too and I think, well, that's fine if you're able to afford that. But what about the people who can't afford that but would still like to be able to take advantage of local produce? Right. Well, and it's good that you mentioned the schools, that this farmer wants to work with, with the schools because... I felt like one of the biggest travesties in this country was when the government started figuring out ways to not give kids healthy meals at school. And for some kids, that's the only really healthy meal that they get mm -hmm. all, all day. That's right. You know, and so if you're declaring ketchup is a vegetable, <laughs> right right you know that's just insane that's um, right. that's and just right. the fact that our government even did things like that just boggles the mind to me mm -hmm. and i think it goes to a larger question of how we value life in this country and right. particularly the lives of people who can't afford private schools and things like that where the kids are getting healthier meals Right, right. So I'll, you know, I'll speak to that from being here in Dallas. Dallas is what I would call a tale of two cities because simultaneously we are one of the richest cities, but we also have one of the highest rates of poverty. And within our school system, over 85% of our students are on the free or reduced lunch program and breakfast program. So that means that their family is not able to afford lunch for them every day. Mm -hmm. So when you think about what that means of how they're going to be able to access healthy food, if breakfast and lunch at school is the only way, and then we take that away, then unfortunately what that says is we don't care about this particular demographic 
that somehow the responsibility is on the parents. And oftentimes, if the parents aren't making a livable wage, if they're having to juggle between paying rent, having enough food to eat, if they're juggling between do they have transportation, are they having to use public transportation, there are so many variables at play when it comes to being food insecure that unless we look at the larger picture of it, it's easy to just point fingers and say, well, people are just choosing not to eat healthy. They're just choosing to eat at these fast food eateries. They're just choosing to do that. And that's not true because there are so many other factors that are at play. And then the, the other, the final thing I'll say about that is it's also disturbing to me because those same groups of students, that means in the summertime when school is out, unless there is a summer feeding program, mm -hmm. then these students don't have that breakfast or lunch. So they don't have, they, they don't have anything. They're really fending for themselves, so to speak. So that's why I go back to saying that it's political that it's apartheid, that it's a system that's in place. It's this cycle that keeps the same group of people without access. Well, and I, you know, you don't want to get into, you know, what would things look like if type right. scenarios, but personally, I find it hard to believe that if there was a perception that it was a, a whole lot of, and I'm, I'm going to even lump poor white kids in the same category as mm -hmm. you know um, black and brown kids at this point but if there was a perception that it was upper middle class and wealthy white kids in these schools that the government probably would not have been declaring ketchup to be a vegetable and things of that nature they would have been much more mindful uh, of what they were putting into the bodies of the children because that directly impacts their ability to learn and some and from what natural health people and all that talk about also behavioral issues how much right. how much does food impact or do you know the answer to this how much does food impact how our brains work how our bodies work and how we behave so I don't have any statistics on that, but what I can say to you is anybody who is suffering from hunger is not going to perform well. Any student who is thinking, I haven't had anything to eat in more than 14 or 16 hours, there's no way that they're going to be able to sit in a classroom and be attentive to what's happening and perform well on any kind of assignment or any kind of test. And I think the same is true for an adult who also doesn't have access to food and they're suffering from being food insecure. They're not going to do well at work. I don't know anybody who goes for hours and hours without having food who's able to, to do well. I mean. I think about sometimes when I just get busy during the day and I skip lunch just because I'm so busy. And then there's a point when I start to have a headache, I start to feel a little dizzy and then I have to stop and think, oh, did I remember to eat today? And then it's like, oh, I skipped lunch. So let me eat something so that I can feel better. Well, I you know, am privileged in that sense that I can stop and get something. But for people who can't stop and get anything, if that's their norm every day, then they're not going to perform well. Or if all they can get is a bag of corn chips because all they've got is a dollar and some change. Exactly. Mm -hmm. right, right. So what kinds of, of solutions do you suggest? I mean, you work in the area of activism. You work with government officials trying to help them. What kinds of things do you propose to help alleviate the situation short-term? And then what about long-term solutions to this food apartheid issue that we have in this country? Yeah, so I think short-term, the one thing that we all can do is to simply show up for town hall meetings, show up at city council. A lot of times, these very topics are on the agendas. And if we're not there speaking up and talking about what 
what's happening in our city. And again, it doesn't have to be just in the community where you live. If you live on the north side and you're a person of privilege, use your privilege and show up when there's a town hall meeting for a person on the south side and talk about what you have on the other side of town and ask the question, why can't the same thing happen on the south side of town? Mm-hmm. I think that's. I think that's initially something that that we all can get involved in in doing. And then the second thing I would say is support local farmers. If you have local farmers in your community, do everything that you can to support them. If you don't have local farmers, then begin to have the conversations and see what does it take to bring local farmers in. Begin to look around at what land is available that you can start utilizing to start growing produce. Those are things that that we can do that we can immediately start to get involved in and start attacking some of these things um, in in terms of some short-term goals. And then more long-term, I think some of the ways that we can address food apartheid is looking at how do we lobby our city's leaders to bring in fresh food retailers into areas that are marginalized? Mm -hmm. How do we talk to them about creating incentives for these fresh food food retailers to, to come into the neighborhoods? And then even if you look at corner stores, how can you take that corner store and ask the city to support a healthy corner store program that um, actually one of the organizations called the Food Trust out of Philadelphia has mm-hmm. put together this program called the Healthy Corner Store, which basically says if the city is not going to provide incentives for a new grocery store to come into the area, then how do you give funding toward the existing corner store and begin to work with the owners of that store to make more healthier choices of what they're going to have in the store so that the community has access to some healthier things. So I think that is certainly one of the things that we can do more long-term in addressing food apartheid. So that would make it more like um, maybe some of the bodegas in New York where they, yeah, they sell the corn chips and all that, but they also have, you know, apples and oranges and pears. Exactly, exactly. They also have apples and oranges and pears and more than just that little area up front. Then how do you expand, you know, three or four more aisles by offering fresher options instead of just the the unhealthy snacks? Awesome, awesome. Well, Reverend Reverend Wyvette, where can people connect with you? How can they get in touch with you if they're interested in working with you or learning more about what you're doing in Dallas to help in their areas? How can they contact you? Can they reach you on social media? Yes, so there are definitely a number of ways that I can be contacted. Um, they can go to my website. It's yvette, Y-V-E-T-T-E, Blair, B-L-A-I-R.com. That's one way. Can follow me on Twitter. It's YVET Reverend Y Blair. Again, YVET Reverend Y Blair. And then on Instagram, I also post a lot about the work that I do and I upload pictures of our local farmers and some of the work that they do with the students. And on Instagram, I am at Preacher Girl, G I R L, 716. Preacher Girl, 716. Awesome. So, and do you have a book? I do have a book. I have a book called Being Ruth, Pressing Through Life Struggles with Fearless Faith. It's actually based on the Old Testament story of Ruth. And I really take a look in this book um, of what happens with Ruth, just the sense of the famine that occurs. And so even there, when you think about food insecurity, what happens from a biblical aspect and what it takes to be able to get to your harvest. So that book is also available at my website. Again, it's yvetblair.com. So that's yvetblair, Y-V-E-T-T-E-B-L-A-I-R.com. Yes. 
awesome. Reverend Yvette Blair Lavalette, thank you so much for being on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Thank you. I appreciate this opportunity so very much. Next up, our good friend Julia Black will be joining me for True Talk. So I'd like to welcome Julia Black to Somewhere in the Middle. Hey, Julia. Hi, Michelle. Well, it's that time of the year. We are coming into new year 2020. Can you believe that? No. The time is passing like, woo. <laughs> I can't believe another decade's. Oh my gosh. Anyways, <laughs> aside from my lamenting the passing of time, um, no, this is this is a really good time of year in so many ways, but it's also a time where a lot of people put pressure on themselves. You know, they start thinking, oh, I've got to lose weight and I've got to do this. And we set all these goals for ourselves and we do New Year's resolutions and this, that, and the other. And I end up feeling like that is a totally counterproductive thing to do. You know, this this isn't even necessarily a good time for that. You know what I mean? Especially coming off of the stress of the holidays. So many people get all whacked out over Christmas and, you know, having people over to the house. You know, especially right now, the country's so divided. People have arguments over the dinner table. People are avoiding family members for, you know, not wanting to talk politics and yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> What are your thoughts about ways that that people should think about this time of year? Or maybe, you know, is it a good idea for folks to be setting all these goals for themselves? And if, if so, how should they go about doing it? And if not, what do you think are some alternatives? I actually, um, I, I agree with you. I don't think this is necessary. I, I don't think the end of the year and the beginning of the year is necessarily the best time to create a resolution. Um, because you're right, you're coming up off the holidays and I don't know, I mean, for me, um, I'm generally spending pretty much every day between Christmas and New Year's just trying to recover from two months of holidays and preparations and things that I have to do with family and, you know, buying presents and, and decorating the house and, and, you know, figuring out when I'm going to meet with everybody and see my friends and see my family and all that stuff. It's, you know, I'm still just trying to recover and relax and kind of feel like I get centered again. Um, and I'm sure that I'm not the only one. Um, and that's just for me and I have no kids. So if I had kids and I had, you know, a lot of other things going on, I think it would be different, but I, I take things, um, in a little different way. Um, I actually look at, um, I actually don't really think about goals and any of that stuff for the new year until after I've gotten my bearings and I feel more myself again. So for me, what I do, the, the, the one kind of crazy OCD thing that I do is I make sure that the house is clean on New Year's Day. Um, mm -hmm. And if I can, if, if we have the money and I can pay someone to do it, then amazing. And if I can't, then I'll spend a whole weekend and my husband and I have done it. We've spent a whole weekend, like just cleaning the house top to bottom, kind of like you would for spring cleaning. Um, I do it for new year because I feel like then, then there's a clean slate and the symbolism of that is enough for me to feel like once new year's day hits and I have the day to just kind of sit and relax and not do anything. Um, it really allows me to just kind of like sit and recenter and rebalance. And then I spend January and February because there, there are <laughs> shockingly no birthdays in my family in January and February, um, which means that there's no family obligations. And so I can spend January and February just kind of hauled up in my house, you know, kind of doing a lot of self-care and doing a lot of staying in and sitting by the fire if it's cold enough. Um, this year it's cold enough. Um, and just kind of figuring out, um, you know, where I want the year to go. And sometimes they're really big goals um, or they're, they're really, and sometimes they're really small. Sometimes it's just, you know, it'd be nice to go do this this year. Or, um, you know, I I really have been finding that I let, that I enjoy going on hikes. So maybe I'll look up 
hiking trails and and I can sit down with my husband and go, hey, let's try out some of these hikes. I think it'd be fun to do. And so we just kind of start talking about those things. And then we keep those in mind kind of in the back of our heads and just try and um, implement them as we can and as we have time. Um, but the self-care, I think, is really important because that because it's so hard to 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 um make sure that that happens around the holidays like between you know once once october hits and i'm preparing for halloween there will you know doing any kind of self-care is crazy is you know i have to like really really schedule it in and be committed to making sure that it happens otherwise it won't happen until after january see i think that's interesting because for me it seems like it's just the opposite like right around the holidays is when i'm like nope time for some self-care, Michelle, and then I get back into uh, get a massage and things that I had not done for often months, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not, I am not uh, obsessive about getting a house clean at the New Year's either because many years ago I was broken of that habit of being stressed out about that. You know? mm -hmm. uh, so that's not something I get stressed out about at all. Um, what I do like to focus on though is kind of the spiritual rebalancing yeah because for me that's really that's really where things um can fall apart easily if i'm not careful you know as you you really want to make sure that your head is right make sure your spirit is right and mm -hmm. so for me this is a time where i tend to focus more on you know meditating on uh, even doing spiritual cleansings physical yeah. and of my environment and and then of course just the regular you know it's it's so much more difficult here because you know we're in a smaller space than I'm used to so yeah. we have not quite enough space right now um, hence some of the decisions I want to make in the in the next year but also that goes to another thing is the whole decision making process one of the things that I think it is really difficult is that sometimes we have decisions that we leave unmade and we carry them into the new year. And some of them can't be helped. Like, you know, you and I were talking offline before and I was saying, yeah, you know, once certain decisions are made about my son and college and where he's going to school, then there are certain decisions I will make as a result of that. But aside from those kinds of things, I really think it's important to kind of get those decisions off your plate. Anything that you've mm -hmm. been kind of reluctant to make a, a final decision on that is not tied to something else, you know, fairly critical, like being tied to college stuff is pretty important. Right. Yeah. You know, get it off your plate because it's taking up energy. It's taking up space in your brain. It's taking up, mm -hmm. you know, uh, your thoughts. And I think it's, it's contributes to stress and anxiety. Yeah, I would agree with that. And it's actually, it's interesting what you said, where you don't worry about cleaning the house because you focus on the spiritual stuff. For me, they're actually one and the same. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, and that's different. And it's, so it's going to be different for everyone, but I feel like I can't actually see anything clearly if my house is a mess. Mm -hmm. um, and so I can't kind of make any of those just like right now, like the rest of the house is perfect. And my office is a complete disaster. <laughs> It is a complete disaster and I need to spend the weekend like really cleaning out my office so that I can, so that I feel like I can think straight when I'm in here. But, um, you know, I think all of those decisions, like you said, I think are really important, you know, even if it's just, um, you know, how, and it doesn't necessarily even have to be like, what specifically you're going to do as much as it's going to be okay i'm going to be healthier this year um here are here are some ways here are some things that i can try even if you don't know how you are going to become healthier um you know it's like okay i know i've liked yoga so let me try that out some more i know i need to eat right so let me try this thing instead that maybe will help me cook better or eat better or whatever um but I, you know, but but the but the decisions I think are important. Well, and I stay away from those types of things at this time of the year um, because 
to me, and and I tied this in, I don't think that this, this is kind of a fake new year. <laughs> you know, it was a time that was made up by some folks a long time ago who wanted yeah. to standardize the calendar. I tend to look at this more like astrologically, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, <laughs> but so to me, this is not necessarily the best time to make those kinds of decisions about things like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I want to lose weight so I'm going to eat better or whatever. I think this is more when I say carry things into the new year, I mean things like, for example, I've been deciding between two two different yoga studios for months now because I like <laughs> them and I've been just reluctant to make a decision and I've had to make a decision. You know what I mean? Yeah. That kind of stuff. That, yeah. You, you have, know? yeah. That's not something that I generally have an issue about. Like generally yeah. I'll just kind of like make a decision and go with it. When I'm talking about the healthy stuff, like none of that stuff happens until after the new year for me. Yeah. Because everything, because I need to feel like I'm more myself. Like I have my, like I have everything, like really everything from like the beginning of November through Christmas for me feels a lot like I'm doing stuff for other people mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and I'm being pulled in 20 directions between work and my business and my family and, um, and everything else. And so it really does take me a while to feel like I have kind of control of my time again. Um, and so getting, getting kind of my sense of being clear headed and all of that stuff has to happen first. And then I can talk about those other things, but like, you know, if I'm going to make a decision about something, it's all right, I'll just make a decision. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, yeah. that's not something I normally, that's not the kind of thing I normally have, have yeah. uh, trouble with, but you know, it's funny because you know, when, and that particular decision, it was like, oh, but I like the people over here so much. And oh, but I like the, you know, that's so rare for me to to go through that kind of thing because I don't usually have those kinds of almost equal things that I'm choosing yeah. between. But I know, mm -hmm. I remember there was one point at which I was just having trouble deciding, should I buy a new stove? You know what I mean? Like yeah. sometimes you just get stuck on these things because you're yeah. thinking about, well, what's the prudent thing to do as opposed to what you really want to do? And I think that's what I mean when I say mm. about a decision. Like if it's something where you're stuck because it's like, well, what's the wise thing to do? What would other people think about, you know, if that's what it is, then you really need to focus differently. You know, you need to not be trying to drag that on and mm -hmm. worrying about what other people think about your decisions, you know, and that's what I think sometimes subconsciously we're doing. Yeah. And, know, I, but and, and for me, and actually, and, and that's a good point. And for me in particular in November and December, I'm more apt to do that. I really am because I'm so, um, I'm so outwardly focused on focused on my family and focused on other people and trying to just, um kind of get everything done yeah that there's a lot of like oh well would that you know th there's a lot more paying attention to how i think other people would react to something as opposed to just what do i really need and what's going to be best for me well and i think it's really important for women in particular <clears throat> to not do that we really need to spend a lot more time i think really ascertaining what it is that we need because <laughs> it's very easy for us to get overwhelmed and you know we're I mean it can happen to anybody I'm not saying that men don't give 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 but I think women in particular we tend to um, we tend to respond uh, favorably to people's requests for different things you know and you know I found myself pulled in different directions and that makes it hard to make these decisions and to clear out the energy that you need Mm -hmm. You know, to get the space for yourself, like we were talking about the self-care, you mm -hmm. know, at this time of year in particular when there's so many obligations. So I just, I, I'm not a huge fan of, of, of setting resolutions and things like that, I think partly for that reason. And so like what, what has become a tradition, 
I would say a relatively new tradition in our family has been to, instead of setting resolutions for the new year, it's to just kind of purge or release whatever we did not yeah. like about the old year. And I think that's the way that I enjoy dealing with some of that. So then going into the new year fresh, clear of anything weighing me down from the last year, you know, I think yeah. that's a good way for me to start things out. Yeah, I really like doing that too. I think that's really important. We actually did ours, um, my husband and I, because it's been a rough couple of months. Um, we actually did ours already. Uh, we did it on the first day of winter, kind of as 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 kind of part of a acknowledgement of the new season. We kind of did all of that already, um, and that was all. That's always just really freeing, I think, um, when you can sit and do that and really just kind of go, okay. You know, there was a lot of baggage. There was a lot of kind of crappy stuff that happened. There was a lot of stuff that was stressful. Let's just kind of let it go and move forward without letting this stuff kind of weigh, continue to weigh us down. Yeah. So if you had, you know, three things you might want to suggest to someone to help them move into a new year, maybe a little lighter, mm -hmm. what would they be? Um, spend a lot of time doing self-care, like really, like allow yourself to decompress from Thanksgiving and Christmas and kind of the running around of the holidays, um, and really just focus on getting yourself back to um, a state of getting yourself and your life and, and, and everything else back to a state of normalcy for sure. Um, and then, um, releasing those things that no longer serve you, however that looks. Um, you know, when I, for me, when I clean the house, there are a lot of things that it's, it's like a good way for me to think through things. And so as I clean, I can think through all of those things that I need to release. Um, and then I just kind of, and because I'm a symbol person, I, I do it symbolically. Um, but you can do it however you want, even even just most of the time, just the acknowledgement of it um, is enough. And then, um, and then with a clear head, start thinking about um, what would be fun and interesting to do in the new year and how you want um how you want your life to look all right well guys those are your best tips for moving forward you know refocus release and then just think about what you want and then just go for it hey decisions made are better than decisions not made right yeah i mean really you can make <laughs> you know i mean like with your, you know, with any kind of decision, when when you've been when you've been wavering about something, just make a decision. Like if it doesn't work out, it's okay. Like there's a lot of there were a lot of those decisions actually. Now that I'm thinking about, there were a lot of those decisions. Like when we moved in to our house and we were picking paint colors, and I would just like agonize over it. My husband goes, "It's just paint. Like really, <laughs> if you don't like it, if you don't like it, we can paint it again. Like <laughs> same thing works with you know anything." You know, so switch to the new yoga studio. If you don't like it, then you can switch back. You know, get new appliances. If you don't like it, you you have to save some money, but you'll be able to get new appliances. <laughs> you know, it's not. You know, it's okay. They're and not that's really the big lesson here, guys. Is it's okay. Just move forward into the new year, and make sure that you are happy and taking care of yourself. Yes, absolutely. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's our show this week, guys. You can reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com or michellebarard.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send in some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. Make sure you tune in to the show on February 7th when my guest will be inspirational speaker Tawana Williams. 
You can find us twice a month on Fridays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern at the Somewhere in the Middle Podcast.com. Let's continue the conversation. You guys be good, stay mindful, and remain prayerful. Peace and blessings, y'all.